back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Jacob Feldman. Thank you again for joining us. We've got a great one uh, today. I'm really excited to talk with Rowan Jacobson. He's a contributing writer at Outside, where he writes about food, science, and the environment. And his story earlier this year on sunscreen, whether it might be the new margarine, was the publication's most read of all time online. He's also the author of seven books, uh, topics ranging from apples to honeybees to oysters, uh, tons of environmental stuff as well. Can't wait to talk to him about that sunscreen story, plus recent work on what he calls, quote-unquote, alt-meat, and on the five trillion pieces of microplastic currently in our oceans. Uh, that's more than there are fish. So uh, that'll, that'll be a fun t- conversation as well, I'm sure. Rowan, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So so let's start with with your food writing. I'm curious, where how does, how does one become a food writer? When did you decide that was a topic that, that interested you? <laughs> um, it, I, there was no plan, for sure. It kind of happened. I, I've, I've always had an interest, and um, it's not not so much on like the um like the, the food reviewer end of things but more on like where does great food come from what are the factors that make it um and i've always found food i'm basically like i kind of think of myself as a, a nature writer disguised as a food writer because um food is a great way to um to write about plants and animals because everybody has a built-in interest you know i got started i um i live in vermont and I began um, editing for a magazine called The Art of Eating, which was like a cult foodie magazine that was based here. And that was kind of my um, entree. That was back in around the year 2000. That was my entree and sort of like a, a deeper terroir driven style of food writing. And, and were there were there models at that time or was that something you, you were sure you, you could you know make an occupation out of? Um, no. <laughs> um, one step at a time, you know, like, um, so I was, I was working as a, a free, freelance editor a lot and writing for Art of Eating um, and doing some other f- freelance writing a little bit. Um, and then I came up with the idea for my first book, which was uh, about oysters. And again, it was like looking at terroir. Oysters were the only food I knew of that were named for the place they came from. Like all the, the famous oyster names are all bays. And it reminded me very much of the wine world. I always loved that about wine, uh, particularly like traditional wines in Europe, how they're always named for the place because people recognize way back that the place influenced the wine in important ways. And, and so it seemed like oysters were the same, but nobody had written about that while there was, you know, 400 wine books out there. So I kind of j- jumped on the oyster thing and then that book did well. So then I got asked to do another book and then magazines started coming to me and it just kind of steamrolled from there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been such a fascinating time for you to, to get to write about food and, and where it comes from and our relationship to it. How have you noticed the way the average uh, food consumer, which is the average person, thinks about food or, or, or the amount that we're thinking about food as a society over the last, I don't know, decade or, or whatever time frame you want to put on it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about food because the media spends a lot of time uh, scaring us about food. Or, or telling us that we need to, to eat differently than we're actually eating. I don't know if we spend too much time thinking about it, or but I, I think we probably don't spend the don't think about it in the right way a lot of a lot of the time. How, how does your work? You know, I think a, a large section of the food writing is is right dieting, nutrition. How, how have you kind of figured out how to work in complements of that, or, or around that, or kind of engage in that dialogue, but in a different direction, like you're talking about more. Uh, in terms of the ethics and, and, and some of the other directions of, of how we should eat. Yeah. You know, I think I just ask why a lot of the time. 
like why are you t why are you telling us to do this or why why is this true so yeah like why like why are certain behaviors healthy we either in food or exercise or whatever or uh, why are certain foods unhealthy um and you know when you follow that back often what you find is that we've kind of forgotten where it all came from we just have that final takeaway and we don't understand the um the uh environment that that understanding came out of that's, that's perfect i actually was going to mention this later but let's dive into the sunscreen story now then because i think it does it does kind of relate to you know why we do the things they do why we're told to do the things we're doing but it's not we don't eat sunscreen how, how did you well we, how did you we do I, come in, across the uh, in a sense we do you know <laughs> oh, go ahead um, yeah 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 well, explain it yeah go ahead like it's an input it's another input that we take in through our skin and and turns out does provide us with various uh healthy compounds um so in a way we do eat we don't eat sunscreen quite as much as plants do but we do eat it a little bit <laughs> yeah so how, how did you decide to write about sunscreen um, often the top my topics are um when i stumble across some piece of information that makes me realize that i had something totally wrong and you know, and that um catches my interest uh, so then i basically try to like try to fund my own education um or my own dismantling of my miseducation on the subject um with an article or a book and yeah so sunscreen i just started uh um seeing the like little little snippets and kind of like the daily news stories that didn't make sense if you believe this whole paradigm that sun is the sun is really bad for you and the best amount of sun exposure you can have is zero which is what we've been all told for the past you know 10 20 years so then i dug into it more and started talking to a couple of researchers and realized there was actually quite a significant body of evidence showing that sun exposure moderate sun exposure could be pretty good for us and there was actually a lot less evidence that sun exposure was bad for us than you would have thought considering how um strenuous the recommendations have been to avoid it so then i that that's when i thought this is uh this is something that i want to know about more about and probably a lot of other people do too yeah absolutely and and as you're doing the research or, or the writing i mean this is a, a life or death issue as you're kind of writing it in a lot of ways are you do you do you think about the impact and, and kind of the the societal level uh, uh issue because it's one of many you know high very high level issues that impacts almost literally everybody are, are you thinking about that when you're, when you're putting this together for sure yeah and and you're right it life or death um and often often i steer clear of those issues i'd like to write about oysters you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> or, right or like you know crazy ex crazy misadventures um in the in like some rainforest or something um so yeah i definitely i i was hesitant to be the person to go out there and tell anybody else what they should be doing about sun exposure um one because i didn't i don't like nobody knows for sure what the best um advice is too because i knew i knew like the american dermatological association was not going to be pleased with me um and i don't like lots of people yeah. out there hating me <laughs> generally um, uh -huh. few do yeah yeah some do though some some journalists are very happy to be like, <laughs> to be hated by large large swaths right. of the population sure. um so yeah I, don't, I was pretty hesitant um i've actually been asked to do a book about this subject since the article came out and again, um, I'm, 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 I'm tempted because the information is so interesting and so counter to what we've been told. Um, but at the same time, 
I don't know if I want to be the firebrand to like lead this particular, I'd rather just sort of put the information out there and let, let other people hash it out. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and yet you, I think one of the things you do so well in your stories is clarity about complex issues. And, and so I'll read briefly what we wrote when we chose uh, the story as, as our, one of our favorites of, of the week when it came out earlier this year. I wrote, uh, it's pretty amazing how quickly Rowan Jacobson can stake a claim along the lines of everything you think you know about sun exposure is wrong and then proceed to convince you in a straightforward, entertaining way. And once you get to the assertion at the end of section two, quote, avoidance of sun exposure is a risk factor of a similar magnitude as smoking in terms of life expectancy, unquote, there's no turning back. So how do you bring yourself, you know, you, you've, died, you've, you've jumped into this topic fairly naive, that's, that's kind of what draws you in. How do you, how do you generate the, the confidence or, or the self-assuredness to write a sentence you know, equating the, this issue to, to smoking uh, in, in terms of life expectancy. Yeah, right. And I almost um, I almost didn't put that in there because it it's definitely, you know, stirs the pot. But that actually that's a, that is a direct quote from the research, the paper uh, by this um, well-respected uh, Swedish uh, scientist. So that seemed like fair game. We and um, actually the magazine outside magazine and especially the fact checker, we we had a great fact checker on the story and we definitely debated. I then sort of paraphrased it, the next line as like, could, you know, could SPF 50 actually be as bad for you as Marlboro 100s? And the fact checker definitely did not want that line in there. <laughs> but I said, you know, look, it's just, it, we're just paraphrasing the actual, what the guy was saying. So um, we went, we went with it and uh, I don't know, still contentious, but um yeah, basically, I just like went through the science um, and uh, of like where sort of these there's the, these various researchers out there who have been trying to publish on like all these um, studies showing the these various benefits from sun exposure, and they can't do it in any of the dermatology journals. They can't do it in any of the usual sources. Uh, and there's a whole other you know topic to discuss there about um, publication bias in in American science. Um, but so they're always kind of working the fringes, um, in terms of the sun issue, you know, they published something in a cardiovascular, uh, journal about sun exposure. Given that, what, what was your, uh, reaction to the reaction? What, how does it feel when you see something that you put the time in, you know, really go wide and, and uh, yeah, I don't know, you know, how many requests you were getting from, from news sources and, and TV shows and all that. But I mean, this was, this was a a major talking point for a few days when, when the story lands and, and a, a huge uh, conversation and, and uh, uh, point of, of education for a lot of people. Yeah, totally. Um, it, and what, what interested me was that there was a little bit of backlash, um, but I expected a lot more backlash. And um, most of the response, it was funny, most of the response was kind of like, yes, we knew that all along sun was going to be good for you. It was, it was kind of like every everybody secretly had never been comfortable with the idea that they had to hide from the sun. So here was like, finally something telling them what they wanted to believe anyway. <laughs> do, do you feel like you made a dent? Um, oh, for sure. I think the whole, the whole paradigm is going to shift. I mean, not, not really because of me, but just because it was, there was kind of like this, like, you know, this tension had built up with all this evidence being held behind this dam. And maybe I put a little chink in the dam. Mm -hmm. So now the evidence is starting to flow mm -hmm. out of, out there a lot more easily. Um, and it's, it's weird. You see this happen in all kinds of cases where the, the established thinking just like hangs on and doesn't want to change. And there's various reasons for that. 
but then once it starts, it it shifts quicker than than you might have thought it would. Um, you know, it happened with like gay marriage. It happened with legal cannabis. I think it's going to happen with sign exposure too, where we're going to shift towards something that is more balanced in the middle somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to to track as that evolves. I mentioned at the, at the top your your more most recent story, I believe, uh, about plastics uh, in, in the ocean and and um, the, these groups that are trying to to make an impact there to to some degree. I'm I'm curious as you, as you think about like the scale and the scope and and the types of stories those are. Um, does it feel different to you when when you're writing about you know this great environmental danger compared to you know this this great health danger? Uh, it's a little more hopeless. <laughs> did you? I don't. Right. It, yeah. I, um. Did I don't know if you have you read Jonathan Franzen's piece that just came out in the New Yorker about like what if we accept? I, ha- I have not yet. I have have it bookmarked, but I'm gonna w- have to wait till I'm in the right mood to read it. I think I read it at like two a.m. last night, which when I was apparently <laughs> in the right mood, bleak. You know. Yeah. Um. Right. The environmental one is like it's just so scary. The health one, at least, you know, we can we can turn that around tomorrow. Um, the environmental one, mm-hmm. it's uh, like the problem. I, I really think the um, the microplastics issue is going to be like climate change number two when we start to realize um, mm. the the fix that we're in and and how difficult it's going to be to to un- to like backstep from that. So, so I'm just going to do the, the the subhead for this story. Uh, Recycling is broken. The oceans are trashed as the plastics crisis spirals out of control. An unlikely collection of executives and environmentalists set sail for the North Atlantic gyre. Am I pronouncing it right? Gyre? Uh, gyre or gyre. Either one, I think, is correct. Gyre or gyre in, in a desperate attempt to find common ground. So so is this something that, that you were aware of before as well? Or how, how did you kind of come, come upon this issue? Yeah, this is um, what was interesting to me on this one was I thought I was up on it. And then, of course, as soon as I got into it, I realized... I knew nothing, you know, I realized I was like a disastrous recycler and what I thought was a problem was really just like the, you know, literally the, the tip of the iceberg and the rest of the iceberg underwater is covered in plastic. Um, so yeah, like I, like, I think like most people I'd heard about these like big, like garbage islands in the, um, in, in the, in the gyres in the oceans, um, like the great Pacific garbage patch, things like that. Um, so I pictured, I pictured large hunks of plastic that all just accumulated there because of the currents and stayed there. And, you know, I knew, I knew whales were turning up with a lot of plastic in themselves. Um, and I thought, you know, that's, that seemed like it's almost like an aesthetically ugly issue with potential health, health problems for the ocean, but something that we, we could take care of, um, but then once you went, once I got into the story, I realized that, um, A, there are no giant islands or trash out there. It's all tiny, tiny bits, but they're everywhere. And, and what happens when plastics in that environment is it quickly breaks down and breaks down and breaks down until you can't see it anymore, but it never goes away because plastic doesn't, um, biodegrade. Uh, so what we have, as as you said in the beginning, is five trillion pieces of plastic out there, and there's no way to get them out of the oceans, and and they're having all sorts of major impacts on on wildlife. And now we know us too. Yeah, yeah. You have you have a section uh, in the story about you know the, those micro uh, bits and and how they're coming into our our bodies. No one actually knows what effect it's having on our lungs, guts, blood, or brains. Uh, one source tells me to look out for some freaky news about what it's doing to our joints. Another mentions carcinogens and endocrine disruptors. Uh, but the reality is we don't know shit 
uh, as you put it. And, and then in another section, you called out some of the, the corporations that didn't show up for this um, gathering and, and you, you called them chicken shit. So I, I was just curious, uh, using that as a jumping off point, how you think about putting your own feelings about an issue in, into a story like this uh, and, and the balance there. Yeah. Um, I, so I sort of felt like what my role was like, I hope every story I write hopefully is going to like move the, you know, move the dial on some important issue in a positive direction. Like, you know, at some level, that's always the goal. Um, and this story, I felt like, I felt like there've been a bunch of pieces on, um, the, the plastics crisis but they tended to be a very, a sort of like dry, you know, 30,000 foot overview type of story. Um, and this was for Outside Magazine. And one thing um, that's been great about working with Outside is they let me kind of, you know, go the gonzo Hunter S. Thompson route and make it very first person and personal um, as a way of making the story entertaining and maybe drawing people into it in a different way than you get with the 30,000 foot overview. Um, and the only other media um, source that was on the this boat was National Geographic, um, which I knew was going to do the thirty thousand foot overview because that's what they do. So I felt like my my role was to do the story in a very different way than Nat Geo was going to do it, you know, and try to strike a, di- a chord with different people. And is your goal when you're writing a story like this to to help the cause to make a difference? I mean, is that is that you know, activism, I guess, would be would be the word you would use. Is that, is that how, how you're thinking when you're approaching a story like this? Um, not activism per se, because activism is really like focused on like specific outcomes, like, you know, measurables, I think. Um, for, but more like idea activism, like reframing, reframing the question in a different in a different way, seeing it all like throwing if you if you want to use like a, an, a photography metaphor, maybe just like setting the lighting in a way that helps people see this thing, this object, the situation differently. Um, so that's, I think that's the goal is just to come at, to come at it in a different, from a different place uh, with sort of a different ambiance. So were you, were you more optimistic or, or pessimistic than, than you entered when, when you got off the boat, when you got on the plane and, and you got offered you know, that, 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 uh, that plastic cup with it, with your drink, which was impossible to refuse. I said, they kept wanting to like, give me one. And they were concerned that I wasn't taking one. It was pretty funny. Um, yeah, it was actually something I didn't get to put in there. Um, so three times for people who haven't read the story, I was just, you know, I was kind of like coming off this trip and renouncing plastic and I'm sitting there in the, in the seat in the plane and, uh, the uh, woman coming through with drinks, uh, said, give, tries to give me a plastic cup with my, can I, I, I like say no I'll just take the can and she's like you sure you want you want some ice in this cup and I'm like no I'll just take the can three times no I'll just take the can um and she's like fine whatever hands me the can um goes on and then the woman in front of me as his head turned around and it turned it turned out to be one of the women who'd been on the boat with me and she just said good job <laughs> so I felt like wow at least at least I got I refused one cup and I have a witness um but uh right yeah yeah but I don't know. I think I'm feeling hopeful because of some things that have happened since mm-hmm. the trip and since the article. Like it, yeah, like what? Um, there's definitely going to be a, a summit number two that Soul Buffalo is going to do. And this time they're getting a lot more buy-in um, from 
corporations who didn't go the first time. So maybe, you know, maybe this article helped goad some of the chicken shits into, into uh, coming around. And now, or I think maybe it was like FOMO, like they, they're all fearful that they missed some big moment. So they're going to make sure they don't miss the next one. Um, so I think there is, um, you know, they all, they all want to, if they can come around and, and tackle this in a way that doesn't destroy their business model, um, they'll do it. Um, but it's going to be, a, it's like a collective action problem where if some of them do it and it hurts them in business against the ones who aren't doing it, that's never going to work. So you gotta, you gotta kind of goad everybody to do it together. Yeah, right. A absolutely. Um, you, you, you mentioned that, uh, that tale on the plane, how much did, did this story, do stories you write in general affect the way you, you go about your, your life for the next three months, six months, five years? Yeah. Hopefully it's five years, not three months, but it's, it's hard, you know, you never, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I was just talking to someone else about this. It is so hard. It's, you can you can swear off plastic. It is so hard to then actually function in the world without plastic. Like you just start to, especially if you're traveling, every single, you know, fork that you use comes wrapped in plastic. Um, you can carry your water bottle with you. and But that is just the beginning. It, it's just like this like tsunami of plastic that comes at you every day. Um, so it's hard, uh, but uh, but yeah, I still I still definitely am more more committed to reducing my plastic uh, footprint as much as possible. And I'm definitely um, because of all the alt meat stuff I've written. I've uh, I I don't don't eat a lot. I, I, I avoid industrial meat altogether, um, and I eat a lot of alt meat now. Especially, I was just on a little trip driving around through New England, and I was just hitting you know picking up Impossible Whoppers at Burger King all the time, and What's interesting to me there is how, like now that everybody, every single um, fast food outlet and every single supermarket is going to have to have a pretty robust um, alt meat section, alt meat options, uh, and it just makes it um, completely effortless to 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 sign on to that and to stop eating the meat. And that's I think what's key is when it's effortless and the flavor is equivalent, it'll be it'll be super easy for people to do, and a lot of people are going to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's the story you wrote uh, in, in late July. Uh, this is the beginning of the end of the beef industry. Why, why do you go with, with alt meat? What, what, why is that the term you, you prefer? Because plant-based meat is so, you know, like <laughs> clunky. <laughs> um, and th like there's, you know, there's several different terms out there. Um, they just want to call it meat. Like that, in, they, they want to call it meat, which is a strange, interesting move to make. I don't know if they're right to do that or not. But it's, you know, I, alt meat seemed like a, 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 an efficient way to, to cover all the different options. Because then you've got the, um, you've got the uh, cellular, what they're calling cellular agriculture as well, which is um, lab meat. So all meat kind of lumps uh, plant-based meat and lab meat together, I guess. What, what kind of response pushback did you get to that, that piece that uh, basically, you know, staked the claim that, that I don't know, I don't know what time frame you put on it, if, if any, but that eventually, you know, uh, traditional meat uh, will, will go extinct largely. Uh, well, again, the reaction was mostly really positive. There's, you know, I got, I got flamed on Twitter quite a bit by people just basically saying like, no one will ever stop me from eating my hamburgers, um, to be expected. But uh, I also, well, the most interesting thing was I, I got very thoughtful, long uh, letters, emails uh, from a lot of people who practice restorative grazing or, um, you know, various sustainable forms of uh, 
cattle farming. And, uh, you know, they were kind of, uh, they were not aggressive, but they were almost a little sad that uh, their type of farming was being lumped in uh, as with sort of the worst style of beef raising as this thing that was ruining the planet in various ways. Does you you have a section in there that that seemed particularly, um, I don't know, about personal to you or exciting, but but just about the potential for the kinds of foods we can make and eat once we go beyond, you know, what 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 uh, what nature has has given us. Does that excite you as as a food writer? That this idea of you know totally lab based creations of, of and combinations of all kinds. Um, it, it excites me more as just like maybe just a creative in general. It's like, wow, what could we do here? It's one of those situations where we've been held back by, you know, what the physical world had to offer us. And suddenly we're going to we're going to pull a little bit free from that. And it could get really interesting, it could get really weird and a little little uh, gross potentially. But um, it's kind of like I think in an earlier version is I had a lot of uh, I had a whole section on uh, skeuomorphs. You know, are you familiar with skeuomorphs? Um, things things that resemble reality or in, in a digital sense or something. Right, Th- things that um, don't need to resemble the real thing, but are made that way because that's what people are comfortable with. So, like the most famous one is like Apple's operating system in the early days. Uh, you know, the like the calendar had this faux leather look to it, and uh, the games section had this like digital green felt and stuff. And then, you know, so and because nobody had ever sort of like, used that stuff digitally before. So they needed like, some sort of referent in the in the quote, unquote, real world. But then after a few years, once people are used to it, they can ditch the, the um, you know, the natural form and just go pure, like digital, create creative. Um, I think kind of the equivalent is going to happen with burgers and uh nuggets and stuff like it's already happened with drinks like the first the first rounds of drinks were you know were all like pretty simple based on things coming from the the real world and then now you know we've got crazy cocktails and sodas of all kinds that have no reference to to anything in the real world um so i think that's what's going to happen with with burgers and uh, um and other sort of like quick service type type foods yeah yeah that's an interesting comparison do you, do you have a sense of who's going to be the the, the steve jobs of, of of alt meat is, is it going to be these these impossible and beyond or are they going to kind of create the the base elements and then it's going to be a chef or someone who, who figures out the right way to to put it together for folks i think they're going to become too established too quickly to to be able to get too experimental i think it's still it's someone we've never seen yet it's going to be some you know rogue startup who's going to do something really edgy that's going to work like none of these guys are going to be too edgy but they're they're so dialed in on perfectly faking be ground beef chicken fish whatever um they're not going to have the space um to to just break away and do totally different things but i think that will it'll be like the next generation of companies that come along that are looking for you know an opening will do it Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, but uh, it seems like for, from your story, you mentioned, you know, the, the stuff Tyson is doing that these, these established players will, will probably have some role in, in legitimizing what, whatever they come up with. Right. Absolutely. And, and everyone, even since since that piece came out, everyone else has been getting into it, too. I think I think like just this week, like Kroger announced that 
they've they've got their own line of uh, of plant based products that are going to be in every Kroger. Every basically Whole Foods has has one coming. Everybody's going to have it, and so uh, yeah, and the big guys like Tyson and Purdue are deep into it. Um, so. I, it, it's, it remains to be seen whether the startups that really drove this, uh, Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, will win in the end, except that in terms of what their ultimate goals are, they, they, they'll definitely win in the end. They just might not be around to celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm I'm curious for, for you, kind of, kind of taking a, a step back, you, you write so much and you're so deep in this world of uh, sustainable food and, and environmentalism and uh, those kinds of things when when you how do you feel reading stories that don't have that kind of lens that question makes sense when you're reading stuff that doesn't take into account the the environmental factors of it all you know the the grand doom of, of our of our planet to, to put it bluntly um are you able to kind of read those kinds of stories what's that like for you to to, to venture into, into those worlds yeah that's a great question um what what's bugged me for a while in um and in, in the, like this these plant based burger stories, uh, part of the reason I decided to do my stories was because that like you always saw the same just brain dead you know story from whatever website or newspaper. It's like ew, they're doing they're they're making burgers out of fake meat. That's weird. What does it taste terrible? I'm going to find out. And, and like maybe one line about the reasoning behind it, but it was really like, Oh, can this, this is gross and, and a novelty and I'm going to taste it and be disgusted rather than, uh, rather than sort of pulling back and seeing it as a much larger, a piece of a much larger, uh, trend in, in progress. Do, do you have a hard time selling your, your your stories to i don't know what your what your situation is but but just convincing editors readers friends whatever that you know the, these environmental stories aren't being told the best way or or, or there's an opportunity for you to, to spin them differently or, or what have you um lately i've not um but i often apparently i'm fringe um like my my editor my editor of the new york times magazine tells me i'm i'm fringe but then what happens there's there's this dynamic um where I'm I'm pitching something that is like you know just like right out there on on the edge of what anybody in this in this area is thinking about, and editors of magazines always and newspapers always like to think that they're completely on top of whatever their beat is, and they're never they're never really on the edge. They're always like a little bit behind. Um, so I'm often pitching things, and people are like, "You're crazy, dude." And then a year later or two years later, they do the story that I pitched them or some variation on that story, you know, because somebody else came along at the right time and pitched it to them. Of course. Is, is there a story that comes to mind when you think about something that, that you were you were early on uh, in the past? Well, I don't want to point fingers at any particular, uh, particular magazines, but in um, carbon farming, like using restorative agriculture for carbon farming. Um, uh -huh. Years ago, I pitched a story uh, to a major magazine that... Uh, told me I was, I, I was nutty and then did the exact same story with the exact same characters, uh, within the past year. Um, and I don't think, I don't think they got it from me. I think it just someone else came along and like it, it became, right, it, right, it became right. an obvious story, but I, I, I try to do them before they're obvious. Like, I feel like Michael Pollan does a brilliant job at being in just the right place. He's, he's figured out, he's really good at figuring out 
what is suddenly going to become obvious to a, a large swath of the American public. Yeah, that's a good way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, but isn't quite yet until he helps them make that like, final step. So he's a good model for that. Speaking, speaking of kind of the, the stuff you read, I read an interview a while back that you don't read any any fiction. Is, is that is that still correct? Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. It's just I'm not I'm never drawn to it. I can't I, I, I got my MFA in fiction writing. Um, right. Yeah. And it's like I can't I can't see it naively anymore. I always see the sweaty writer trying to trying to convince me that it's real, you know, so it kind of it kind of takes the pleasure out of it. Do, do you write fiction? No, not it. I haven't since uh, not since grad school. Maybe someday. What what was uh, what why'd you give it up? I just found I I really like um, I like working. I like being handed a bunch of little pieces that I have to work with. It's kind of like you can compare it to being a chef. Um, like I don't like I don't make my list of things that I want and then go to the grocery store and get them and put it together. I like to go foraging. I do a lot of foraging and whatever I wind up with, then I have to make something interesting out of those ingredients. And that's kind of like, that's kind of my approach to stories is go out, you get your material and then you're like, okay, what is this or, or what could this be? Just being, being forced to have certain limitations on what you have to work with, I think is helpful for me for whatever reason. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Do you have a, a list? I was curious if you have a list, you know, of issues and then you kind of look for the characters to build them around or whether you, you know, come across a character and then figure out what the what the topic or theme is. It can go both ways. Um, yeah, so it, it, it could be either one. Like if. Um, well, so I did a top. Here's a good example is a few years ago, I did a piece on the Colorado River for Outside Magazine. And uh, this is sort of in the in the like peak of the drought, and they had sort of come to me and said, "Hey, we want to do this important subject. We want to do a really big piece on the Colorado River." And again, I was worried that it was going to be the thirty thousand foot overview story, which tends to be really flat, like kind of dull. And I didn't want to do that, so I was like, "Why don't we find? Let's find a couple. Let's find a way to tell the story." that has some drive to it that's like really like on the ground and it has like personal stakes for the characters um so to their credit and this is i think the only time i've ever done this they paid all my expenses to just go down there and um and bump around and talk to people and try to find the characters like so to do like pre-research for the story which was great because i ended up finding these great characters and um this was right when there was this uh, what was called a pulse flow event where usually the river, the Colorado river is so over allocated that it ends right at the border with Mexico, the re the end of the water gets used. And then the Delta all the way through Mexico is dry, but because of this agreement, they're about to release a bunch of water down the Delta. And so I met these guys who wanted, who all their, their lives were all about working with the river. Um, but they also uh, decided they were going to paddleboard this, uh, this pulse of water when it got released. So we, we paddleboarded the, the Delta um, through what had been this dry channel through Mexico. Uh, and that became sort of the, uh, the vehicle to tell the, the bigger story of the river's issues. Yeah, that, that, that is really interesting. Uh, awesome. I'm gonna, I've got one last question for you. I, I saved my, my hardest question for last. <laughs> uh, it, we've talked about these issues. I'm, I'm curious on the grandest scale, what role you think reporters, uh, writers, readers, stories 
have in, in the fight against climate change uh, in general? Um, I think really important, super important in that in particular, because it, again, obviously climate change is the ultimate collective action problem. And what I was talking about earlier about just like throwing a different light on it can, can like can change the way people see something. So I think, uh, writers, reporters, are like all the facts are known, like that's not going to work. That is not going to change behavior. Uh, the only thing that's going to change behavior is sort of changing how people see the whole thing, like the, see the whole holistic system and their role in it. Um, and that is a total uh, job for writers. Like no one else can do that. Um, mm. so I think it's us or nobody. Yeah. Probably nobody. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's op optimistic or pessimistic, right? You can take that. I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you uh, decide which one it yeah. is for yourself. Uh, fantastic. Rowan Jacobson, thank you uh, so much for taking some time uh, to talk today. Uh, everybody, thank you again for listening to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. Rowan, th thanks again. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, of course. Uh, we'll, we'll be back again soon with, with the next episode of the Sunday Long Read Podcast. Until then, as always, you can check out uh, our newsletter letter and everything else at sundaylongread.com. Uh, until then, uh, thanks so much. Bye.